Part seventy nine of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part seventy nine. James Mitchell, executed for murder. The subject of this narrative was a native of Salisbury, and his first occupation was that of a ploughboy in the service of a farmer near his birthplace. Having afterwards removed to London, he obtained a situation as groom in a gentleman's family, and while so employed he became acquainted with Miss Welshman, whose life he subsequently took away. Miss Welshman was a lady's dressmaker, and lived as a forewoman with Miss Macy, who carried on that business in Mount Street. She was an elegant young woman, about four-and-twenty years of age, and of a most amiable disposition. To her, in an evil hour, Mitchell paid his addresses under the name of Smith, and represented himself as a purser on board some ship. The credulous girl believed him worthy and honourable, and permitted him to visit her at the house of her employer, where he was for some time treated with politeness and friendship. At length his own conduct betrayed the deception he had practised. He obtruded himself at improper hours, and more than once he offended the young ladies in the workroom by the coarseness and indelicacy of his conversation. This coming to the knowledge of Miss Welchman's brother, he prevailed with some difficulty on his sister to forego the acquaintance of her lover. In accordance with this advice, Miss Welchman had several interviews on the subject with Mitchell, but notwithstanding her desire that he would not again visit her, he persisted in annoying her. On the Friday, the 5th of August, 1814, he called at Mount Street, and was ushered into the workroom where Miss Welchman was sitting. He continued there during the whole evening, notwithstanding the repeated requests made to him that he would leave, and, as it grew late, he desired Miss Welchman to provide supper for him, and subsequently to lend him money. Both requests were refused, and eventually, at eleven o'clock, Miss Macy and her workpeople went away to supper. Mitchell being now left alone. Miss Welchman, however, returned to him, saying that she desired to be alone with him for about five minutes. But she had scarcely entered the room when a loud scream was heard, immediately followed by the report of pistols. Her companions immediately rushed into the apartment, and found Miss Welchman a lifeless corpse on the floor, a pair of pistols lying by her side, which, on inspection, bore evident marks of being the instruments with which the murder had been perpetrated. The hat of Mitchell was also discovered, but the window was open, and it was found that the assassin had escaped by descending into the street by that means. On examination it was found that Miss Welchman had been shot in the head. One bullet had entered the her temple, and the other had been resisted by the substance of her forehead. The murderer, in the meantime, had succeeded in making his escape, and the officers of justice were dispatched in pursuit of him, but without effect, for as he had been for a length of time out of place, a clue to his last residence was not easily found. At length word was brought to town that he was in custody at his native place, Salisbury, to which he had bent his steps, and where he had been recognised by his old master, the farmer, who, having heard of the murder, immediately had him scoured. On the 13th of August he was brought up to Bow Street, in the custody of Taunton, the officer, where he underwent an examination, after which he was fully committed to Newgate. He appeared very little affected at his situation, and preserved a sullen silence. 
On Friday, September the 16th, he was arraigned at the Old Bailey for the murder of Miss Welchman. The evidence was circumstantial but conclusive, and, when called on for his defence, he denied the crime with which he was charged, and said that it was not proved the pistols and hat were his. He called no witnesses, and the jury, having been charged, retired for a few minutes, and returned with a verdict of guilty. The recorder, after silence had been proclaimed, pronounced the dreadful sentence of the law, which was heard by the prisoner without the slightest emotion. He was executed on the 19th of September, with a man named Hollings, who had been convicted of a similar offence in the murder of his stepdaughter, to whom he had formed an attachment, notwithstanding his having married her mother, and whom he murdered in the street at the door of her master, Mr. Cartwright, in Lower Grosvenor Street, because she had refused to accede to his disgusting and lustful propositions. So great was the public curiosity to see the unfortunate malefactors, that at seven o'clock on the morning of the execution, the Old Bailey and Giltsmer Street were crowded to a degree almost unprecedented. Much money was given for indifferent seats at the top of the houses opposite the debtor's door, and carts, wagons, and other vehicles were put in requisition. At a quarter before eight the prisoners were introduced to the press-yard for the purpose of having their irons knocked off, accompanied by the Reverend Mr. Cotton and the Reverend Mr. Frere, the latter of whom sat up in constant prayer all night with Hollings, who joined most fervently in the devotion. Mitchell, who was dressed in black, was first brought out from the cell. He looked pale, and maintained a deportment of sullen resignation. He did not say a word, nor did he betray the slightest symptoms of feeling at his awful situation. The irons being knocked off, and the usual ceremony of tying the hands being executed, he lifted his hand as far as he was permitted, and looking up, bowed, and appeared to be in prayer. Hollings stepped forward to the block with great activity. He was, however, very tranquil, and upon being disencumbered of his irons, he addressed the persons around him in nearly the following words. "'Here, you see, I stand a victim to passion and barbarity. My crime is great, and I acknowledge the justice of my sentence. But, oh, the unfortunate girl I loved, I adored as one of my own. I have made contrition, and prayed for forgiveness. I resign myself under an impression that Almighty God has heard my prayers, and will forgive me. May you and the world take warning by my example, and here I confess the justice of my fate. Receive my soul, O God. At the last expression his feelings overcame him, and he wept. The whole of the awful arrangements being complete, the prisoners were ushered to the fatal scaffold. Mitchell was until this time firm and unconcerned, but he now became much agitated, and the horrors of death were strongly portrayed in his countenance. Holling shook hands with the officers of justice, declared to Mr. Frere that he was quite happy, and mounted the scaffold with great firmness and resignation. The clergymen continued to pray to them until the fatal signal was given, when the drop fell. Mitchell continued in the strongest convulsions for several minutes, and appeared to die very hard. After they had hung some time, three females were introduced for the application of the dead man's hand, supposed to remove marks, wens, etc. The first was a young woman of interesting appearance, who was so much affected by the ceremony that she was obliged to be supported. At nine the bodies were cut down, and sent to St. Bartholomew's Hospital for dissection. Major J. G. Semple, alias Lyle 
convicted of swindling. The case of this offender has obtained considerable notoriety, from the circumstance of his conviction having been disputed, and from the decision upon it having therefore became a precedent often quoted in our courts of law. Semple, it appears, was born in Scotland, in 1759, of a respectable family, and in the year 1775, at the age of sixteen years, he entered the army, and went to America. In the following year he was taken prisoner of war, but was soon after released, and retired from service with a pension for wounds. He subsequently entered the army of Frederick the Great of Prussia, but in 1779 he again returned to England, and then married an English lady of great respectability, whom he met at Harwich. During a visit to France a short time afterwards, he became acquainted with the Duchess of Kingston, alias the Countess of Bristol, whose case we have already given, whom he accompanied on her visit to Russia, and having there consented to join the Russian service, he was appointed captain in the Imperial Army by Prince Potemkin. During his employment in this capacity, his conduct was such as to gain for him many honours, but in the year 1784, being dissatisfied with his position, he retired to Copenhagen, from whence he eventually returned to England, and there misfortune fell upon him in the worst form. On the 1st of September 1785, very soon therefore after his arrival in this country, he was indicted for feloniously stealing a post-chaise, value fifty pounds, the property of John Lycett, a coachmaker in Whitechapel, and upon the trial it appeared that he had hired the post-chaise for a limited period, as he alleged to support the character which he was entitled to maintain, but that it was never returned. The defence set up was that the transaction could only be looked upon in the nature of a civil contract, and that the chaise having been regularly ordered and sent home, no charge could be brought against the prisoner except that arising on the sale of the carriage, and that he could only be held to be indebted for its value. Upon argument, however, the court held that there had been a felonious dealing with the carriage, and the prisoner was found guilty and sentenced to be transported for seven years. He was conveyed to Woolwich on his way to a penal settlement, but he was eventually pardoned, on condition of his going abroad. From Woolwich, therefore, he went to France, and there he became acquainted with Bruyere, Pétion, Roland, and several of the leaders of the day. He was present at the trial of Louis the Sixteenth, and shortly after resolved on returning to England in consequence of the rupture with this country, which he then saw was inevitable. He therefore obtained a passport. He was denounced to the Committee of Public Safety as a spy, who was going to join the enemy, but being secretly apprised of what was going forward, he was able to effect his escape, although with some difficulty, before the order for his arrest was issued. On his escape, he joined the Allied army against France, and distinguished himself on various occasions, but particularly in the Battle of Saint-Fronde, which lasted three days, and at the time of the retirement of the King of Prussia from this campaign, he found himself incapacitated from service, and almost destitute of the means of existence. After a short retirement, however, he had recovered sufficiently to remove to Augsburg, and on his arrival at that place he was suddenly arrested by the order of the Baron Dompteda, in the name of his Britannic Majesty, but his imprisonment not being legal, he was shortly afterwards set at liberty. 
Considering he had been ill-used on the continent, Semple again returned to England, and in 1795 we again find him at the bar of the Old Bailey, on a charge of stealing in the shop of Mr. Wattleworth, in Wigmore Street, one yard of muslin, two yards of calico, and one linen shirt. It was proved that the prisoner came into the shop of Mr. Wattleworth about noon, on the 10th of November, 1794, and, showing two patterns, one of muslin, and the other of calico, said he wanted them matched for Mrs. Conningham of Egham Green. They could not find an exact match in the shop to the muslin, but he chose one, and a yard being cut off together with two yards of calico, he said he would give them to the lady's servant then at the door, and, calling in a man, he gave them to him. He then said that he had just arrived from the continent, and should want a quantity of shirts, and wished to take one with him to consult his sister who, he thought, would be a better judge of the linen than he was, that he would bring it back in the morning, and then give his order. He called his sister Mrs. Conningham, and as Mr. Wattleworth had a customer of that name, he made no hesitation, but gave him the shirt under those conditions. This happened in November, but the prosecutor never saw the prisoner again until January, when he was in custody in Bow Street. The counsel for the prisoner contended that the charge of the felony was not made out. The evidence, if true, amounting only to that of obtaining goods under false pretences. Mr. Justice Buller, who tried the cause, admitted the counsel was perfectly right as to the calico and muslin, but he did not agree with him in respect to the shirt, and therefore left that question to the jury. The prisoner, in his defence, entered into a history of his past life, with a view of showing that, although he had been before convicted, his general course of conduct was not that of living by fraud, but the jury found him guilty of stealing the shirt, and he was once more sentenced to seven years' transportation. Notwithstanding his notoriety, for there were many other charges against him, many persons, amongst whom were Burke and Boswell, interested themselves in his behalf, but after remaining about two years in Newgate, in a state of uncertainty as to his future destiny, he was at length removed to Portsmouth, and from thence proceeded to New South Wales. On the passage a mutiny broke out on board the transport in which he sailed, and Semple, being one of the ringleaders, he, with twenty-eight others, was sent adrift in an open boat. He had contrived to conceal a quantity of gold in some soap, and succeeded in carrying it off with him, and after a dangerous passage he and his companions landed in safety at Fort St. Pedro, in the province of Rio Grande. They were received with great hospitality by the governor of the fort, and Semple was introduced by his fellows as a Dutch officer and passenger, a tale of shipwreck being trumped up, but a quarrel arising among them, their real character was subsequently exposed." After remaining during a considerable time at Brazil's in the year 1798, he went to Lisbon, but there he was arrested by an order of the British minister and sent to Gibraltar, and while there being suspected of being party to a conspiracy which was discovered, he was again arrested and sent to Tangier. In December 1798, a dispatch arrived from England, ordering him home in custody, and he was accordingly sent on board a ship and arrived at Portsmouth the following April. He was immediately conveyed to Tothill Fields Brideswell, where he remained till he was again sent out of the country. From this period nothing particular occurred in the Major's life until his return from Botany Bay in 1810, when he resorted to his former evil practices, 
but as he became more notorious he became less successful until at length he was reduced to the utmost distress and had recourse to the basest means of supporting a miserable existence in eighteen fourteen he went into a cheesemonger's shop in devonshire street queen square and ordered a small quantity of bacon and butter to be sent to number forty two cross street he met the messenger at the door and taking the articles from him sent him back for six pennyworth of eggs when the boy returned he knocked at the door and was informed that the person he inquired for did not live there and that they knew nothing about him this was true for the major had only made a feint of going in to deceive the boy and had made off when the lad was out of sight for this offence he was apprehended and brought to trial at the middlesex sessions december the third eighteen fourteen and found guilty when for the third time sentence of transportation for seven years was passed on him william sawyer executed for a murder in portugal the circumstances of this very singular case may be shortly stated as follows the prisoner was engaged in the commissariat department of the british army and in the month of february eighteen fourteen he went out to portugal where he lived in the same house in the campo mayor at lisbon with a friend mr record who had a free male named harriet gasket under his protection an attachment grew up between this unfortunate woman and sawyer who however had a wife at the time in england and his attentions were so apparent that they excited the jealousy of his brother officer and he appears to have remonstrated with his friend and mistress which occasioned much infelicity on the twenty seventh of april they met at dinner with two or three other officers but such was the agitation of their feelings that record harriet and sawyer ate nothing the latter appeared greatly dejected and as well as harriet withdrew as soon as possible in the evening the party heard the report of three pistol shots and on going into the garden harriet and sawyer were found both lying on the ground harriet was quite dead but sawyer had not been mortally wounded on his being removed into the house he was left in the care of a brother officer while the others went in search of a physician during their absence he contrived to get a razor with which he cut his throat in a dreadful manner but not mortally next day the officers met and reduced the facts to writing the prisoner signed the document as well as a paper in the following terms having laid violent hands upon myself in consequence of the death of harriet i think it but justice to mankind and the world being of sound mind solemnly to attest that her death was occasioned by her having taken part of a file of laudanum and my discharging a pistol at her head provided for the occasion i took the residue of the laudanum myself and discharged two pistols at my head they failing in their effect i then retired to the house and endeavoured to put an end to my life leaving myself the unfortunate object you now behold me signed william sawyer and three witnesses the word my in the above paper was interlined the prisoner also signed a declaration that harriet gasket had consented to leave mr record and live with him and that mr record had told her on her threatening to quit him that she might go to the prisoner's hotel the reason assigned by him for the attempted suicide and murder was that harriet declared that she thought that mr record would shoot himself if she quitted him and that she therefore would not live and he added that he had shot her at her own request 
and not in consequence of any quarrel with her, and had then attempted to kill himself. When the prisoner was sufficiently recovered, he was removed to England, where, shortly after his arrival, he was indicted at the Old Bailey, April the 7th, 1815, for the above murder. His case excited great interest, and the court was filled long before the arrival of the judges. The facts already stated having been proved, the prisoner was called on for his defence. He put in a written paper, in which he stated that in consequence of his being unable to articulate from the wound in his throat, he had committed to paper all he had to say in his defence. The paper then went on to state that the prisoner had felt the sincerest affection for the unfortunate individual in question, towards whom he had never meditated the slightest injury. He perfectly recollected her having entreated him to shoot her, but had no idea of what passed subsequently, till some time afterwards, when he was told he had signed papers, of the contents of which he had no recollection. He then expressed acknowledgments for the efforts made by his prosecutors to bring forward Mr. Record, who would have been a material witness in his behalf, and had only to lament that these efforts had not been attended with success. Several persons were called to speak to the general humane character of the prisoner, among whom were General Sir Edward Howard and Colonel Sir William Robe. A Mrs. Nichols proved that the deceased had lodged with her from June 1813 to February 1814. She was of a most violent and tyrannical disposition, and had a pistol, which she kept constantly in her room. Lord Ellenborough, having summed up the case, the jury found the prisoner guilty, but recommended him to mercy. Mr. Alley and Mr. Kerwood, on behalf of the prisoner, then moved in arrest of judgment upon two technical points, which arose upon the face of the indictment, and judgment was respited until the 12th of May. The court on that day, however, gave their opinion that the grounds of motion were unavailable, and sentence of death was immediately passed. The prisoner appeared deeply affected throughout the proceedings, and upon the awful decision and sentence remained motionless for some time when at length he faintly requested one of the officers to entreat the court to recommend him to the royal clemency. Monday, May the 22nd, 1815, being the day appointed for the execution of this infatuated man, at an early hour an immense number of spectators had assembled at the Old Bailey to witness the awful scene. After the sentence of death was passed on him, he assumed a degree of sullenness, and the only declaration he was heard to make was, that he would not be executed. And this being considered to import that he was resolved on self-destruction, his intentions, if such they were, were defeated by the constant attendance of two officers night and day. On Sunday he received the sacrament, after which he appeared more composed. About three o'clock his wife went to the prison for the purpose of taking a farewell. She was announced by an officer, but the unhappy man gave a peremptory order that she should not be admitted and all that could be urged could not induce him to see her. When he went to his cell he was much depressed, and refused any kind of sustenance, and at about two o'clock he lay down, and soon after became very sick, and vomited copiously. He continued restless until half-past six o'clock, at which time he was visited by the Reverend Mr. Cotton, who prayed to him fervently. A little before eight o'clock Mr. Sheriff Ray, attended by the usual officers, proceeded from Justice Hall towards the cell. The unfortunate gentleman was introduced into the press-yard by the ordinary. He was very dejected, 
and did not utter a word during the time of his being conveyed to the platform. At eight o'clock precisely, every necessary arrangement being complete, the fatal signal was given, and the unhappy man was launched into eternity. During the ceremony, a profound silence prevailed throughout the populace. He died under evident symptoms of paroxysm, and a quantity of blood gushed from his mouth from the cut in his throat. At nine o'clock the body was taken to Bartholomew's hospital, in a cart, attended by the under-sheriff and officers. He was dressed in a suit of black, and was not ironed. End of part 79